Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. Okay, um, my name is Stephanie Hoffman and I'm here with Rachel Woody. We are here with Lori Lewis and Renee Neely. Uh, it's June 14th, 2016 and we are at Hip Chicks Do Wine in Portland. And the first question that we always start off with is why wine? Fell in love with the Oregon wine industry. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Uh, just looking for something to use as a vehicle for this passion that we had for wine. and. Winemaking seemed to be the right path for us. Instead of grape growing, it's harder. <laughs> I have a follow-up. Yeah. Is that okay? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, did you guys? Did you fall in love with the bottle of wine, and then that's how you were like, "Oh, we'll we'll make wine." Like, how did that evolve? So I moved here from Texas um, in like 1992, 93 and literally had never had wine before. And um, a couple of years later met Renee and she had a love of wine. And so we started going out wine tasting and literally, you know, within about a year, I went from the sweet Riesling, you know, goodness to um, big hearty Syrahs. We, we visited at that point almost every single winery in Oregon. Um, it was a lot fewer than, I mean, yeah. <laughs> it was a little easier. Um, and over the course of that year, uh, it started just getting so excited about wine. Um, fell in love with a couple of specific wineries. Um, Kramer Vineyards will always have an extremely special place in our hearts. And um, made some wine at home and literally one day sitting at a winery out in Dundee having a picnic in the back of the pickup truck. We looked out at the vineyards and said, you know, this looks like fun. And the other one said, it can't be that hard. <laughs> Boys do it all the time. <laughs> and so that basically started the journey of what do we want to do with wine? How are we going to make this happen? What steps do we need to have? Can we even make wine? And. Uh, just kind of progressed from there. Yeah, it took, uh, we decided that uh, if we wanted to be in the wine industry that one of us better go out and find a job in the wine industry. So Laurie went and did that. She did that for four years working at a tasting room out in Dundee every weekend. So basically not having a day off for four years. Uh, <laughs> well, I, we have had a day off in very long time. I know. <laughs> so so uh, through that she was like, yeah, I think I, we really want to make wine, and the whole idea of, um, as we talked to different uh, other Oregon winemakers, got really excited about it because it's very forthcoming with information, with all the questions that we had, and I know we were really annoying. Oh yeah, we were yeah. very annoying. Sorry, Trudy. <laughs> um, so, but with that, we gained a lot of knowledge and figured out, yeah, this is what we really want to do. We want to make wine. Um, and we know we don't want to commute out to wine country every day. Yeah. So. And it was it was very timely because at that point, Chemeketa Community College was just starting their 
enology and viticulture programs. And so we really got in on the ground floor with all those early classes, which were pretty much almost all about grape growing, at least that first year. Um, and that was really the piece that let us know we're not farmers. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's a whole different piece of the job. Um, I think our philosophy really is um, they're two separate things that to me are best done separately. I think that um, farmers who grow grapes, uh, that, that takes a very special talented person who can really listen to the earth, listen to their grapes, listen to their sight, and, um, and grow things with love and care. And winemakers, that's a whole different piece. And yeah, there's some people that can do both well, but for us, we really felt like we could be the best we could be if we just picked the one piece and focused on that. Mm -hmm. um, but so those early classes at Chemeketa were fantastic. Um, I ended up taking classes there for a good couple of years, all while working my corporate job, 40 to 60 hours a week, Monday through Friday, and working in a tasting room Saturdays and Sundays. Um, wow. But you know, that's, you kinda gotta fully immerse yourself in it, I guess, to me. And we made wine at home during all this time. Um, we made some fruit wines. We're really bad. They're terrible. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, you know, we went and picked, picked some grapes at a couple of different vineyards and made some grape wines and they were pretty good for our very first wines. Our friends liked them. Mm -hmm. And um, so we just kind of kept growing and took this elaborate 10-year plan that we thought we had to have, you know, the whole formal business plan that we agonized over thinking we could just go and get an SBA loan. Um, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, over time decided that that plan was too long and that what we wanted to do was happening right then. And so we bought some grapes. Uh, the winery I worked at was very kind and let us use a little corner of their winery to make our first wines in and made 500 cases of wine. And that was 1999. Wow. Um, you kind of hit on this a little bit when you said you didn't want to drive down to Dundee every day. But um, was there a moment when you decided that you wanted to become an urban winery and you didn't want to move south? Because that was the thing to do, is if you wanted to make wine, you had to go south. So how did you make that decision to stay? Um, I think it was the whole idea of uh, there had been other urban wineries in the past here in Portland, and I thought that that was really cool, uh, walking around in Northwest and going, wow, there's a winery in town, that's neat. Um, and the whole idea of you don't have to commute, um, I mean, we knew we're not gonna grow grapes, so if we make the grapes do the commuting, that just made more sense. And, you know, we like the vibe of Portland. We like living in the city. We like that, you know, you can go down to New Seasons or Whole Foods and get your, you know, nice cheese and this and that, and you don't have to, like, crap, I gotta go into town. So, it's a whole idea of just really convenient. Um, also, we thought being an urban winery, we, you know, get more people. People don't want to commute, you know, out there and try wine all the time. Sometimes they, they're on a bus or, you know, they have an Uber or whatever. So we just thought it'd be a lot more convenient as well. So Yeah, I mean, we figured, you know, you've got your built-in customers, people who live in Portland, and the tourism in Portland is, um, you know, so amazingly ever-changing and there's so many people that want to experience wine country but they don't necessarily want to rent a car and they don't know where to go and the prospect of driving you know 45 minutes to get out to wine country is you know 
maybe not something they can fit into their tight schedule. So making wine in Portland just seemed natural to us. Um, yeah. Uh, what were some of the challenges of being one of the first um, urban wineries in Portland? It was lonely. <laughs> um, by the time we actually opened up, the wineries that had pre-existed in Portland had already closed. Um, so when we, uh, when we actually opened our tasting room in 2001, we were the only ones. And it wasn't very easy to get people in the door. Um, people have a definite um, perception that you can't make wine if you're not in the rolling hills and vineyards. Um, I mean, even now, 16 years later, people walk in and they're like, but I don't get it, where do you grow the grapes? <laughs> <laughs> and you know, the two vines we have out front don't quite give us anything. <laughs> um, but it was, it, was, it was hard. It was hard to get people in the door. Um, we, we somehow did it though. And luckily, you know, five years later, um, the Portland Wine Collective opened up. Portland Wine Project. Portland Wine Project <laughs> opened up, um, which had Bodecker Cellars and Grishow Vineyards, Grishow Cellars. Mm -hmm. And um, that was great. Uh, downside was they were never open. Right. <laughs> so even though we finally had somebody else in town, um, they were only open, you know, weekends for a few hours each day. Um, and so for the longest time, I think just getting the word out there was the biggest challenge, um, which is I think why we started doing so many events and wine festivals and farmers markets and just trying to get our name out there. Yeah, lots of education, yeah, still. <laughs> yeah, I saw that you do do a lot of those events. Can you talk about um, the, um, I guess, evolution of you doing those events and like how you got all these ideas because you have like your cookie pairing and your chocolate. <laughs> and so what made you think to go to all these places and do them? You know, um, a lot of it's customer driven. You know, we, we sell about 90% of our wine directly to the end consumer, which is a tough way to sell wine. Um, you know, a lot of wineries do have distribution either in the state or outside of the state. That's also a hard way to sell wine. I mean, there's no easy way to sell wine. Wine is hard. Um, but we get to talk to a lot of our customers we do. by selling the wine directly to them, either out of the tasting room or at wine festivals and things. So we get a lot of feedback from them. Um, I mean, some events we've done have not been so successful. Cinco de Mayo events are not wine events. No. <laughs> People want to drink margaritas, not wine margaritas. No. <laughs> um, some of the events have been surprisingly successful um, you know, we didn't necessarily realize that people would love Girl Scout cookies and wine so much and they did um, will it work again next year I don't know but um, we're willing to try it and um, see what happens and you know we just basically sit around and think about what are some really fun interesting quirky things that somebody else might find interesting and give it a try I think hurt. also too it's the whole idea we want to make wine fun Mm -hmm. And that is part of the reason why we chose the name, uh, why the urban environment, uh, doing a lots of different tasting events that really kind of just brings it down. We don't need to be snooty. We're not trying to sell you a $100 bottle of Pinot Noir. Um, just want to make it accessible, fun, and then you come back and you buy more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. That definitely was um, 
part of the reason that we got into the wine industry was the fun aspect. Um, you know, when we started, there were plenty of people taking wine seriously. I mean, people still take wine seriously. It's a, it can be a serious beverage. Um, but it's also just a beverage. It's something that you can have every day. Every day. You can have it with breakfast. Um, you can have it with lunch. You can have it with dinner. Um, you can have it with ice cubes in it if you want. You can have it with fruit. You can have it with a little splash of 7-Up. You can have it aged appropriately for 10 years and open on a special occasion. It's just wine. Oh, what do you believe are some of the differences between um, the or um, urban wineries in Portland and those in the Willamette Valley? Definitely accessibility. Um, you know, here in town, you can get to everybody walking, bicycling, Bus. TriMet, car. Um, that doesn't always happen uh, out in the valley. You've got to plan a little bit better. Um, in terms of actual logistics, um, there's not really any difference. Not I really. mean, you know, even the folks out in the valley, most of them are having to buy grapes from other vineyards, so they're still having to have grapes trucked to them. Um, it's the same equipment. It's the same, uh, same process. It's the same access. Um, I guess for us, though, it, it goes back to that idea of being a challenge, people wrapping their head around you making wine in town and how strange that is to people. Um, what do you think? <laughs> That's about it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the nice thing I will say about, uh, about the urban wineries, which is similar to out in the valley with a lot of people is just the friendliness and camaraderie. That was one of the whole reasons that we came together as an association is to be able to share best practices and bounce ideas off people and hey I ran out of filter pads does anybody have any? Um, hey I'm going out to Newburgh to pick up some supplies does anybody need me to pick anything up for them? Um, it's a very friendly group and um, Granted, you know, we're all in competition with each other in some way, and yet each urban winery has its own draw of a specific customer base based on its own brand. So while we may share a few customers, um, really you can go to any Portland urban winery and see a completely different set of people that I may have never seen here at Hip Chicks. So it makes it kind of fun and similar but diverse. Um, we saw that you are an active member of the LGBTQA community in your personal lives and in your business. What have been some of the advantages and disadvantages of supporting the cause through your own business? <laughs> it's tough because um, you think, oh, you're gay, so all the gay people are going to love you. <laughs> no, not necessarily. Not necessarily. <laughs> I don't know why that is, but again, you know, maybe it's homophobia on their part, uh, whatever, but we do. Um, we're out. We don't, you know, we don't try to hide it. Won't, no, we're not sisters. <laughs> we do get asked that a lot. We get that a lot. Yeah, a lot. Is it a family winery? Are you sisters? Yeah. <laughs> yes, no. yes, it's a family winery. No, we're not sisters. <laughs> um, so I think it's, it's, it's interesting. It does, um, people think it's, it's great, and I'm sure there's some haters out there, and that's fine. They can hate. Um, 
so it's just kind of it's an interesting thing I mean somebody could probably write a whole paper on it I suppose <laughs> they wanted yeah mm -hmm. so um, I mean we do have quite a few um, gay wine club members um, people we like to do we sponsor pride this will be our 10th year uh, as being the wine sponsor for pride um, what we do is we uh, have three different select wines that we make for them and what we do is we donate the wine to the bars mm -hmm. so that's how they make their money is they sell all of that alcohol is donated and that's how the wine beer and the spirits yeah. is all donated so we mm -hmm. donate all that wine to the bars and then they sell that and that's how they uh, make money with that so. so that's how they put on pride um, and pay for permits and security and tents mm -hmm. and all that and then any money that's left over after they've paid the expenses actually goes into a scholarship fund which not very many people are aware of mm -hmm. um, so you know when you go down to celebrate pride at the pride festival and you buy a glass of wine or a beer or a cocktail you're actually maybe helping somebody go to college um, which you know makes you a giver too yeah, <laughs> yeah no, I think it's been interesting um, it's been interesting to decide how out we wanted to be in our own business um, I think in the early years it was really difficult for me to be out I'm just a Texas gal who moved to Oregon. <laughs> Texan by birth, Oregonian by choice. Um, and uh, so yeah, so those early years, it was really difficult. I, I was not so comfortable being out and always kind of felt like uh, my personal life was personal and my business life was business. And, um, uh, but was always drawn to, you know, helping to support different gay causes. Um, we've been big supporters of um, Our House of Portland and Esther's Pantry and um, especially lots of HIV and AIDS organizations. Um, I think those are probably the nearest and dearest to my heart. Mm. Um, and over the years, um, you know, we've just been a little more out depending on the time. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think the first article that was actually written about the fact that we were opening our winery was in our, back then, local LGBTQ gay you know, newspaper, Just Out. And um, Marty Davis came and took pictures and talked about our opening. And it was really, you know, kind of exciting to, to be able to be the, you know, business in the news, um, you know, with our own paper. Um, and uh, it took a while, I think, for anything else to happen, like with the whole gay thing. Um, girlfriends. Yeah, well like 2005, 2006 yeah. I think. Um, girlfriends Magazine, which also no longer exists. That happens with gay papers. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, they, uh, they did a little article about um, gay winemakers and winery owners. And that was kind of exciting because there's a national publication and we got a little mention in it and a picture of one of our wines and, you know, how cool was that? Um, it was also about the same time that the first article was written about urban wineries. Mm -hmm. um, and so we got included, you know, with a couple of urban wineries um, for that little piece. But really, it's been in the last 10 years that we've really kind of become more out with our community. Yeah. Um, the Pride labels really kind of catapulted that. Um, as far as I know, we're maybe the only winery in the U.S. that makes a Pride wine specifically for our local Pride organization and 
donate as much as we do for them. I think there's one other label down in California, um, but I don't know if they're still around. Mm -hmm. um, and they mostly just did it for profit, <laughs> not <Yeah>. for. <laughs> mm -hmm. It was a gimmick. It was. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But um, but yeah, it's been it's, and it's interesting. You know, we got married um, two years ago, and that was a real turning point for me of. Um, how much I let people in on that as well. And I kind of spent a couple of days trying to decide if I was going to post anything on our Facebook page or, you know, how to do that or, or do I put this picture on Instagram? And um, I think that was also a big turning point of um, if you're going to live your life, um, if I want to live my life the way I say I do, then I have to live it openly. So. Um, how have the two of you um, divided up the different parts of the business um, since the beginning and now um, a couple of years later? <laughs> well, Lori's a control freak, so um, <laughs> pretty much she, uh, she runs a lot of stuff. Um, we found out, it, it just kind of uh, definitely evolved into that. Um, I do a lot of the day-to-day -day seller work. Uh, I drive the forklift better. I can drive it very well, actually. Yeah, so, which is also kind of surprising. Girl driving a forklift, um, and Lori does, you know, the books. She does all the hard stuff, and I get to do all the messy stuff, if you will. So, all the seller work and blending and dirtying stuff up and cleaning stuff up. So, yeah, I do more of the the books, the marketing, the social media, the hiring, the stressing over hiring, <laughs> the. Um, <laughs> those pieces um, you know when it comes to the actual winemaking it's in the fall I mean it's both of us right there on the sorting line we don't hire a lot of extra help um, during harvest um, we just we don't make that much wine yeah. and I'm a control freak <laughs> um, so you know it'll be the two of us on the sorting line it's the two of us deciding what grapes to buy um, I you know I I like more of the geeky sciencey stuff so I maybe spend a little bit more time pouring over the, you know, supply manuals and deciding what kind of wine yeast we're going to use this year. Um, we get real geeky with that stuff. Um, I used to do more of the lab work, but over the past couple of years now, Renee does about as much as I do. So it's kind of just more who's who's doing what, who's available for what. Um, I t I, we used to say too, you know, I tend to like more red wines, so I would decide make more of the decisions about the red wines, and that Renee tends to like more white wines, so she makes more decisions about the white wines. But even that's gotten a little bit more blurred in the last couple of years. Um, it's more about, hey, we need to come up with what kind of blend we're going to make for this red blend. Okay, Renee has a couple of ideas, blends them up, brings them to me. Blind taste. What do you think about this one? What do you think about that one? And then we kind of go from there. Um, so it's it's definitely a partnership, but she has jobs I don't want to do, and she has jobs I don't want to do. So so it's a good thing that we do our own job. <laughs> and when it comes to selling, then that's really both of us. Yeah. Um, you know, again, like selling your wine ninety percent to the end consumer, you're going all the time. So some months, you know, we have a wine festival or an outside tasting or a wine walk in, you know 
a local town or whatever every single weekend. And um, so you kind of take your turns as to who's going to be on that day yeah. or who's going to be mostly in front. And then, mm. you know, the other person can jump in and, and take that, that hard question. So, yeah. It works. <laughs> <laughs> Um, we saw that you are in the middle of rebranding your winery. Um, what made you decide to go on that endeavor and what has been the process um, of rebranding everything? I dragged my heels for a long time. I'm of the if it ain't broke don't fix it mentality and um, for me it wasn't broken. Um, but we had a good friend who is an extremely talented graphic designer who wore me down. <laughs> and um, and she had some good points, you know. Um, our our original logo and label that we came out with in 1999. Um, I mean, I love it, and it's a classic. And um, and people love it. People love the shiny hologram foil. Um, they love the two girls with the glasses raised. You know, um, it just kind of screams fun to people. Um, and our new label is a little more sophisticated. It's a little, a little sleeker. It's a little more grown up, mm -hmm. yes. It says, hey, we have been in business for 16 years. It's okay to not draw people in with shiny holographic foil. Um, <laughs> um, you know, we'll never change our artist labels, um, or we won't get rid of our artist labels. We might update them at some point. Um, we, have, um, we have our wine bunny wines, which are, um, uh, kind of art deco uh, colors. And the main thing with the wine bunny wines, Suzanne Moulton, who was the artist and graphic designer for those labels, um, we used to show her artwork here. And one day I emailed her out of the blue because I just loved her artwork so much. It was all really strong, like women focused, like women playing sports and things. And um, I just thought it was so cool and I liked her style. And so one day I emailed her out of the blue and was just like, hey Suzanne, have you ever thought about doing a wine label for us. And about 30 seconds later, she sent me the prototype back for the Wine Bunny Rouge, which is our red blend. So apparently she had thought of it. <laughs> and I loved it so much. And I was like, I love this. Let's, let's do a set. Um, and my only request is I don't want any of the women on these labels to be white. Because 99% of the time, if a woman is portrayed on a wine label, she's white. And that gets old and it doesn't really portray the world that we live in. So um, she did our Wine Bunny Rouge, which is our red, and our Wine Bunny Blanc for the white wine and loved both of those so much. I was like, we don't make a blush, but just give me a bunny with some pink hair and yeah. we'll, we'll create a wine for it. Um, and so I just, I truly love that, that series of labels. Um, our Pulp Novel labels are also original artwork. Um, those were done by Nell Warren. And those we actually came out with in like 2003, 2004? Like 2003. Um, Renee had always wanted uh, labels that kind of mimicked the pulp novels of the 1940s. And so we had, uh, we had Nell look at a whole bunch of book jacket covers and just kind of come up with some original artwork for us. And then when you read the back label, which Renee writes all of our back labels, it kind of reads the way the back of a book jacket would read. Um, yeah, so it's a little fun. Yeah, Again, it's a little fun. fun. So you know, you've got <laughs> Drafted Red, you've got Riot Girl Rosé, you've got Bad Girl Blanc, from the wrong side of the tracks, you know. <laughs> um, but they're fun, and, and over time we realized that all of our artist label wines were blends 
didn't mean to do it that way. It's just how it ended up. And then everything with the hip chick label on it is a single varietal, except for one, because there's that can't one. be perfect. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, and then a few years ago, we came out with a whole separate line of wines that are actually named after our son. Um, his name is Tiernan, and so we have Tiernan Connor Cellars. Um, it's a little more uh, sophisticated. conservative, sophisticated yeah. label. You know, he's not going to grow up to be a hip chick, so we made him his own wines, and then we make him help, because nothing in life is free. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and he loves it. You know, he's grown up here. We opened the winery the year that he was born, and so um, he's seen it all from the inside out, and he's helped, you know, with harvest from the minute he could see over the fermentation bins. You know, we've got pictures of him all tiny and small with a big old punch down in his hand. <laughs> um, you know, then he went through those preteen years where maybe being at the winery wasn't so fun. And now that he's 15, you know, when we have an event, he sets up all the tables and chairs for it. You know, he, he comes and helps on the sorting line. He carries the heavy stuff. Um, couldn't do it without him. Right. Doubt he'll go into the wine business. No. Because it's not his thing. But maybe. You never know. <laughs> he could come back to it later. All right. So I would love to know about the Hip Chick's name. How did that come about? <laughs> uh, well, let's see. I guess we were sitting around drinking, uh, trying to think of a name for a winery that you wouldn't forget the from the night before. You know, there's always that bottle you had, you're like, did it have a, a rooster on it or something? <laughs> so we decided, um, instead of Lewis Neely Cellars, that uh, we wanted to have something fun, again, approachable. Um, and so we were like, we're chicks, so why don't we come up with Hip Chicks Do Wine? Because it's different. You remember it. You remember that you had that bottle the night before because you're like, it's something with chicks. So, <laughs> um, And also, it was a whole idea that uh, at that time, back in 1999, um, it was, people were, you know, really, really serious, and we really wanted to make it really approachable, fun, um, no stupid questions asked, it's all good. Uh, so we just came up with that, and we're like, all right, let's go for it. Let's be different. Mm -hmm. You know, granted, a lot of people did not like that, but, you know, it worked. Yeah, we wanted something really approachable. Um, I think one of the things we've always kind of felt like is that hip chicks could somehow be like the gateway wine into wine drinkers. You know, people aren't afraid to come up to us and ask us those questions. You know, what's this swirling thing about, or or what are legs really? You know, um, all those all those little questions, and um, and so having this fun, approachable name just kind of made sense. Um, and we're women, and we had read that. Women do most of the wine buying, and women like to buy wine based on the labels. And all of that is true. It is true. <laughs> um, I, I think actually a lot of people buy wine based on the labels. It's not just women, but, but women do. And they're not afraid to admit it. And um, you know, you can certainly have a really catchy name and a catchy label and have not so good wine in it. We've all had those. Yes. Um, so our challenge for ourselves was to make a really good sound quality wine that just happens to have a fun label on it. Right. And I think we've done that. I think we have too. Yeah. So your business philosophy has definitely come through as far as being serious wine, serious fun. Yeah. Was there, have you guys like made that up as you went along? Was there somebody where you're like, oh, I like what they're doing, we'll do that. And I know you said you got some flack for it too. So how did you navigate that? 
It's been a lot of trial and error, mm -hmm. I really feel like. Um, there's a lot of people out there that don't want to have fun with wine. <laughs> they, they do want to just be serious all the time. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, just this last weekend, we had a customer at an event that was overheard by our staff to say, well, I don't know, I wouldn't expect wine made in a warehouse to be any good. Which is odd. Because <laughs> like, <laughs> right? isn't every building, building kind of like a warehouse? warehouse? I mean... Even in wine country? Maybe it's shaped like a barn, but it's just a big building. <laughs> so it's just such an odd comment to hear somebody make, um, again, especially after all these years. Um, but yeah, there's a, there's a lot of people that, that are completely turned off by the fun. We have a lot of people that come in and they don't expect to like the wine because how could it be any good? if it's going to have that cute of a name. Um, and it's nice when you see the light bulb go off and they realize they actually like it and you get the awkward backhanded compliment of, yeah. but I've liked every one. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Yeah. Um, and all you can do is say thank you, mm -hmm. you know, and be grateful and gracious and think, ha, huh, I, I did it again. I, I got yet another person who didn't think they would like it to like it. Um, I think definitely, you know, you, you do follow what other wineries are doing. Um, I mean, I'm always looking to see what everybody else is doing. If you just sit around and focus on yourself and do your own little navel gazing, your, your business is going to wither up and die. Um, when you've got this much really good competition in Oregon, you should be checking out what everybody's doing. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I'm on Facebook, seeing what kind of events other people are doing, seeing what the draw is, what they like, what they don't like. You know, you go to a wine festival, you're picking up other people's wine club brochures. You want to see what's going on out there and, and how they're, you know, uh, marketing, marketing themselves. themselves. Mm -hmm. um, I think at the same time, though, um, I'm an open book. Yeah. You know, <laughs> um, and as it should be. The Oregon wine industry was founded on these ideas of people to coming together as friends to build this industry. And so if somebody's doing an event that I've done before and they call me up and say, hey, how is it? Did you sell any wine? I'll tell them. Mm -hmm. I don't care. I'm not here to hide anything. Um, we have totally different brands. Now, maybe there's some events that they would sell more wine at. Maybe I wouldn't. Um, vice versa. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm happy to to share information. I think that's that's kind of the Oregon way. It is the Oregon way. Yeah. yeah. I'd like to touch on your winemaking philosophy now. It sounds like you do have your varietals, but you also really love doing the blends. Mm -hmm. How do you balance that? What are you really into? Talk about that. I'm into it all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, um, we're really into wine and food pairing. And so, um, all of our white wines, we age and ferment in stainless steel. We like to keep everything crisp and clean and fruity. Um, we really want you to taste the grape. Yeah. Um, the grape has its own life, its own story, and um, I don't like to mask, you know, all those lovely fruit flavors with oak. Um, all of our reds, we age in oak. Um, but again, mostly neutral oak. We maybe only introduce about 20% new oak um, into our red wines um, because we want you to taste the grape and hear what it has to say and, um, and be really true to where it's grown. We, we work with anywhere from six to 10 vineyards um, at harvest and really try to pull in 
things from the places that we think they grow the best. Um, the last couple of years we've been primarily focused on Oregon, but some years we get grapes from Washington too. Back in like 2005 to 2007, we actually had a full, what, third yeah. to 40% of our grapes came from Washington. Um, and uh, everything else was from Oregon. Right now we're kind of spread out. We've got a couple of vineyards in the Willamette Valley. We work with a couple of vineyards in the Umpqua Valley, a couple of vineyards in the Rogue Valley. Um, but yeah, so it's like basically taking really good fruit and not screwing it up. Yeah. So that's basically our philosophy. Keep it clean. Keep Don't it screw clean. it up. Yeah. <laughs> so. um, we, but we also, I feel like we make a little bit of something for everybody. Um, you know, there's a lot of wineries out there that want to just focus on Pinot. Um, or focus on one varietal, and I think that's great for them. Again, we're more about the diversity, mm -hmm. um, so we make a little bit of something for everybody. I think right now we have about 14 wines in the bottle. Um, we have at least three dry whites. Mm -hmm. um, we have three or four single varietal reds, um, one red blend, although we usually have two, and then four to five different semi-sweet to sweeter wine so a little something for everybody mm -hmm. um, I don't personally always drink those really sweet wines but there's plenty of people out there that do mm -hmm. and I make wine for people not just for me yeah <laughs> when you were taking those classes at Chemeketa and, and testing and trying out some of your own wines was there ever a point where you're like we don't know what we're doing or like oh we totally got this or I feel it was a little more on the we totally got this yeah not that I think that I felt like we were the best winemakers in the world at that point. You know, you realize like, hey, this is the only second or third time I've done this. And boy, are our wines better now? Oh, oh yes. Just yeah. like know. everybody else. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it, that's, a, you know, that's a funny thing. Every once in a while, a customer will come up and they'll be like, you know, I tried your wines back when you opened. They're a lot better now. And I'm thinking, well, they should be because we've got 16 years under our belts. And guess what? Some of our growers are better now, too. Yeah. Like, yeah. the longer you're in business, you know, the relationships you establish, you can get better grapes. And um, you know a little bit more. Um, I never really, I don't know why, but I never really felt afraid. Or, yeah, and over our head, really. No. And maybe the beauty of that, too, was that if you did have something that came up and you were like, oh. What do I do? I just called somebody. Um, again, that's the beauty of the Oregon wine industry. You know, you call up somebody who maybe knows a little bit more than you do, and you're just not afraid to say, so this is happening, seems mm -hmm. kind of weird, not really sure. Have you had this happen before? And they say yes or no, or I've heard of that, or maybe try this and see what happens. And um, it's uh, as it should be. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, the, the fun thing about taking classes at Chemeketa is you really, you got to learn about Oregon winemaking from Oregon winemakers. Mm -hmm. We didn't want to make California wine, so we didn't want to go to UC Davis. We didn't want to make Washington wine, we wanted to make Oregon wine. And being able to go in and take classes with some pretty amazing people, some of who are no longer with us, mm -hmm. um, I, I would do it all again. Yeah. So. Who were 
and are some of your mentors? Uh, Susie Gagne um, was so helpful. Bryce Bagnell, neither one of them are alive anymore. They are, they were such talented winemakers. But I think for me too, it was a lot of the women in the Oregon wine industry. Oh, yeah. um, Amy Wesselman, mm -hmm. love Westry wines. Mm -hmm. Those were some of the first ones that we just fell in love with. We did. Maybe it was also because they were about our age mm -hmm. and they were already doing it and so that was so inspiring. Susan Sokolblosser, um, listening to her talk, you know, being able to sit there while she's doing a seminar on wine and health and have her, you know, give us a tour of Sokol Blosser and a little behind the scenes and was amazing. Trudy Kramer, amazing, amazing woman, like so strong and so open. I think the very first barrels that we ever bought to put our wine in were Kramer Vineyards barrels. Mm -hmm. um, boy, we were at Kramer Vineyards all the time, just regularly, like picking their brains, asking them questions. Um, and now to see both of their daughters, you know, in the wine industry is, I mean, we, I remember them as little tiny girls <laughs> and watch them all grown up and being successful on their own is so exciting. Um, and then you had all the people like, you know, David Lett. David Lett, yeah. You know, going barrel sampling with him at an event and listening to him talk about barrels and aging and starting the Oregon wine industry and being so down to earth and regular Joe um, was pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. Am I missing anybody? I don't think so. Yeah. It's a good list. It is a good list. Mm -hmm. They're good people. What is it like being women in the wine industry? Interesting. This is interesting. You know, a winery um, that I'm friends with uh, posted last week, I think, on Facebook or something, and they were like, they were quoting, I think, Karen McNeil talking about um, how great it is that 10% of the winemakers in Oregon are women. And I thought, well, that's a pretty crappy number, in my opinion. Um, you know, uh, I mean, there's, there's women in a lot of aspects of wine. Um, but I think really taking it and owning it and being winemakers and winery owners and um, it's definitely a little underrepresented. Um, and uh, and hard. Yeah, it is hard. Um, I guess because again, you get that whole perception of you're just a girl. Yeah. And then, you know, what do we do? Oh, I know, let's have a fun label too. You know, we're just we're just asking for it. <laughs> Seriously, asking for it, and be gay too. Let's throw that in there. So, um, it is tough. Um, it, it takes you know you as a as a woman you have to work twice as hard to get the same recognition, or your wine's not going to be as good because you know you're a girl. So, um, it is tough. I mean, we do still get the side comments of yeah, but but who's your actual winemaker? We are. Yeah. Or they're but, like, the, but who yeah. actually makes it? <laughs> right. Like, not some other, tiny guy in my pocket right. here. <laughs> other winery owners are like, you, you, you have a female winemaker, right? I'm like, uh, it's yeah. Us. Here we are. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah. And I guess maybe part of it too. I mean, I don't. 
I don't go around like saying, and we're women winemakers all the time, because I guess I just feel like you should know, like we're hip chicks do wine, we're the hip chicks, owners and winemakers, but it's not like emblazoned on my shirt, you know, woman winemaker. Um, uh, yeah, and, and I remember in the early years too, like your comment about the forklift, um, we had a delivery of like bottles or something and Renee goes out to unload the truck, you know, and get everything off of it. And the guy was like, well, you got anybody here to drive the forklift? Well, what do you, uh, it's forklift, <laughs> it'll be fine. Okay get things off and put them on and and seriously you should see her in action because I just it's kind of scary to me like she can manipulate that thing in <laughs> tight little spaces and um, yeah so but yeah I mean I think being being a woman in any male-dominated industry is going to be a challenge um, and we have come a long way in Oregon and there are a lot of women winemakers in the Pacific Northwest in general um, do I think that they're, for the most part, still given kind of the amount of respect they should be? No. Do I think there's necessarily anything we can do to change it? Um, just keep being true to yourself mm -hmm. and um, putting it out there. And, you know, for all of the younger women winemakers that are coming along today, maybe give some props to those of us that came before. Be yeah. grateful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we saw that you are a vegan winery, mm -hmm. yeah. and so what does that mean? Was that a conscious choice, and what are some of the advantages and disadvantages? It was a conscious choice. Um, when we first started making wine, um, some of our best friends are vegans, and we wanted them to be able to drink our wine and, and enjoy it and not feel like they couldn't or feel compromised. Um, you know. Uh, I don't know that we ever necessarily meant to use it as a selling feature, but definitely over the years, uh, as more and more people are choosing a vegan lifestyle, um, it does come up. Um, I think also just from a winemaking perspective, you know, we've never felt the need to use things like icing glass or egg whites in our wine. Um, we just like to keep it as true and 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 simple, I guess, as we yeah. can. What do you have? You know, again, don't screw it up. You don't need not a lot of manipulation, right? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, over the years, it's definitely been something, like I say, that people ask about. Um, we've had our wines in a couple of vegan restaurants here in town, where that's been really important to them, starting out to make sure that they could offer vegan wines. Not a lot of people know what makes a wine vegan or not vegan. You know, we use only bentonite clay when we're finding any of our wines, and we only find our white wines. We don't fine or filter any of our reds. We leave all the good stuff in, we have all the flavor. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but the white wines we do fine with bentonite clay. And, um, and it was interesting because uh, Renee was at a Pinot Gris symposium a few years ago and the idea of vegan wine kind of came up during the symposium and another winery there was like, I, I, it's on their website that they have vegan wine and he's like, I wouldn't say that. I never say anything like that. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> and I, I kind of thought, well, the um, marketing department used to talk to you. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, you know, and, and uh, we've, we've participated in a couple of like, um, like vegan Iron Chef a few years ago, um, and that was really fun. Do I think it's a huge selling feature? Not necessarily. Um, I don't know that the majority of people 
who are vegan necessarily seek out vegan wines. There's kind of a smaller number. Some people do feel really strongly about it, and you know they'll they'll contact me from other states, you know, to confirm, and they'll be like, well, I need to order something for my mom or my sister mm -hmm. or a big event that we're having. Um, but I don't know that we sell a whole lot of wine because it's vegan. Right. I think it's just something that's kind of nice when we're talking to somebody and they happen to mention. Um, what we do try to do though, um, because, because of having vegan wines, we've had several wine club members over the years who are vegan. And so we make sure that at any of our events, we've got some vegan options for them um, on our little appetizer you know, mm -hmm. table. And we have a lot of um, club members that happen to be celiac because we care about that. And so we make sure that we've got a couple of gluten-free options um, for them. Again, I think it goes back to that whole idea of an urban winery for everyone. Yeah. Um, we like to be all-inclusive. I guess I'm a people pleaser. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so for clarification, because we definitely Googled this quite a bit the other day, is so you use clay for the fining process. Right. If you weren't being vegan, what do the other people use that is not animal friendly? Um, they might use egg whites, especially with Pinot Noir. Mm -hmm. um, you would uh, use egg whites as a fining agent. Um, it's not like it stays in the wine, so you're not mm -hmm. drinking egg whites, mm -hmm. but they're Again, used, it's passed through, and so mm -hmm. it's used um, in the making of the wine. Um, icing glass is also used, which is basically like dried fish guts. Mm -hmm. Also doesn't sound real appetizing to me to know that maybe I put fish guts in some wine, so we've never really been into that. And then everything else is more you know, chemical processes. Um, uh, but so the, the icing glass and the egg whites are kind of like the two big ones. Yeah. Um, that people might use. Diatomaceous earth. Yeah. So, you know, little fossils. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, depends on how serious of a vegan somebody really is, you know, as mm -hmm. to what level these things are going to matter to them. So. Well, thank you for explaining that oh, yeah. for us. It was really interesting <laughs> going down that rabbit hole yesterday. You know, it does get very confusing. It does. Especially here in Oregon, like people get, um, people ask a lot about like organic wines. Are you certified organic? Right. You know, no, we're not certified organic. Um, I have no urge to jump through all that those extra hoops. Yeah. Um, I mean, a lot of the vineyards we work with may farm organically um, or as close to organic as they can. Um, many of the vineyards we've worked with have been live certified. Mm -hmm. um, but again, it's a lot of hoops. And if you're going to farm organically and make wine organically, then really you got to charge more money because it's going to cost more money. And we really want to try to keep our wines, you know, in a little more affordable, everyday drinking kind of place. Um, so you make those concessions. Mm -hmm. yeah. What organizations are you a part of? PDX Urban Wineries. Um, I founded PDX Urban Wineries in 2011. Um, basically, I'd heard that there were whispers of several <laughs> people talking about opening up their winery inside the city limits of Portland. And so after a little bit of uh, online searching. I tracked down some emails and sent some emails out to some folks and um, got a group of people here and sat around and talked about the idea of coming together as a more formal group and you know using that for some marketing and and um, just joint promotions in general and um, six of us wineries decided to come together and form the PDX Urban Winery Association 
um, again, I'm bossy, so that meant I became president. <laughs> and um, every year in January, I say, anybody else want to be president? And it gets real quiet in the room. <laughs> so I'm still president. Um, but um, no, I love it. Um, we're, we've grown now, we're up to 14 winery members. Um, there's actually somewhere between 20 and 23 wineries in Portland, um, but many of them are super small, like less than 500 case per year production. Um, several of them also share winemaking space, um, and so they don't necessarily have their own physical location. And you always have people that kind of are making the decision of do we stay in Portland, do we move out to the valley, like what yeah. makes sense. So there's been a little bit of flux over the last couple of years. Um, but uh, but I'm super proud of the PDX Urban Winery Association. I think that um, it's a great group of people. It's um, it's people who really care about each other. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess that's really the only organization we're really a part of. Yeah. We've been members of the Willamette Valley Winery Association. It's a great organization. Now though, we actually work with them more as two associations working together. So um, I've participated in several, you know, like joint meetings where we're just kind of talking in general about promoting Oregon wine. Mm -hmm. um, we work a lot with the Oregon Wine Board. Um, yeah. Just phenomenally amazing people who care about this industry. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. For the PDX Urban Winery Organization, what's been the agenda since you've got started? What are some of the major issues you try and tackle? A lot of, it's mostly been promotions and trying to figure out how to be a resource for wineries that are all different sizes right. um, and all different makeups, you know. Um, uh, it was really exciting. This year we finally got, we've had a little bit of press, you know, off and on, but this year um, in February's issue of Food and Wine magazine, um, no, Wine Enthusiast, wine enthusiast. Yeah. they did an article about urban wineries and PDX Urban Wineries got a mention and some photos from some of our member wineries and, um, and that was just exciting to mm -hmm. see a little bit of recognition. Um, you know, when, when we started making wine, um, there were literally like four urban wineries in the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, there was one in Sacramento, there was SRS one in New York, and there was one in Chicago, mm -hmm. I think it was. And you know, now there's a huge urban wine scene. You've got urban wineries in New York, Chicago, Austin, um, San Diego, Sacramento, Seattle, um, like true what I would call urban cities. Mm -hmm. um, there's a few other wineries that like to call themselves so urban wines. Yeah. I don't know if their cities are big enough that I would really consider them urban, but you know, more power to them. Right. They're, in a, they're in a town and yeah, own it, take it, run right. with it. Um, but it's really grown a lot. Um, and I think being able to see these different brands um, that are all represented within our organization get a little bit of recognition has been very exciting. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Jackalope Cellars um, was a member last year. He's actually making wine out in the valley now. Um, but I do feel like, you know, by him being a member of PDX Urban Wineries, that that kind of gave him a platform to, to wow. get a little bit more exposure and, and yeah, get launched a little bit. Mm -hmm. And now, you know, Corey's about to go on his second trip to Japan, introducing his wines to Japan. And I don't have my wines in Japan. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it's 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 a it's a really great group of people, and 
and I feel like the organization definitely helps people with their promotions and just in general. I do all the social media for the association and so it's a constant, you know, send me your stuff, what are you doing so I can promote it and put it out there and um, you know, trying to give a little bit of love to everybody, <laughs> basically. What are some of the similarities or differences for the PDX urban wineries versus a more regional association? Money. <laughs> <laughs> you know, again, being a small organization with a lot of really small wineries, we try to keep our dues really low and manageable. Um, you know, nobody has a ton of money to throw towards just being a member mm -hmm. um, of something. and. So, so we keep our dues really low, but then that means too that say we want to do a special, you know, advertising push or something, maybe the association pays for half of that advertising and we split the rest up amongst the members and that kind of thing. Um, it's also a challenge just because you've got so many very small brands um, and so many new or newer labels that not everybody's at the same level of, um, expertise or, or experience in selling wine. You know, just because you can make wine does not mean you can sell it. Um, they're two completely separate different things. Um, some of our member wineries are way more focused on distribution in outside states. Mm -hmm. So that means they're traveling a lot. So if we're trying to have a meeting here so that we can make some decisions about stuff, it might be hard to get somebody, you know, representative from their winery into the meeting. Um, and then you have us that are just like constantly going and selling wine in just a different way. Um, it's a lot to juggle, I think, the different mm -hmm. styles of selling wine. And about half of the wineries in Portland operate more like wine bars, and um, the other half are a little closer to a traditional winery tasting room aspect. So that in itself is a huge challenge. Um, it's a challenge for the wine tasting customer because they want to do an urban wine tour but oh it's a Tuesday and I think there's only two of us open on Tuesdays right um, and that's actually really recent it used to just be us open on Tuesdays um, or you know it's a, a Wednesday and they come see us at 11 and then some of our other closest wineries don't open until 4 so then we're like, let's see, have you been up to the Rose Garden? Have you done this? Have you done that? Go have lunch at a food cart pod, and then you can go over and see these wineries. Um, logistically, we're all really close to each other, so that's helpful. Um, I mean, you can, go, uh, you can go from our farthest south member, which is no longer us, um, up to our farthest north member in probably on a good day 45 minutes. Mm -hmm. If there's not terrible traffic, um, some members are close enough you can walk to them from the other. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that's a perk. Am I missing any perks? I don't think so. Or any challenges? <laughs> I think money's the biggest challenge. Money is the biggest yeah. challenge because everything mm -hmm. takes money. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, and getting 14 different people to agree on what we're going to spend that money on. That's another challenge um, because different people, you know, have different ideas about what's going to be successful. 
Um, I am kind of excited we're going to be uh, partnering with one of the local bicycling clubs um, and uh, sponsoring them and getting our logo in their emails and promotional materials and on their websites and on their biking jerseys and um, working with them and doing like three events throughout the year for all of their member bicyclists and Portland is such a big bike town mm. you know to be able to have PDX urban wineries in front of a targeted group of 400 to a thousand people is great all for what's going to be a fairly nominal buy-in um, and we're also going to be participating in a new uh, ale trail map um, and so even though the the main focus of the the map and the promotions are about all of the local breweries well we've all got breweries right around our wineries and not everybody wants to go just to see breweries um, especially when you're talking tourists again you know we have people in all the time and they're like well yesterday we did beer and today I put my foot down and I said we were going to a winery you know <laughs> and so getting those people in our doors is um, really important because um, you can just eat and drink your way through Portland mm -hmm. it's that kind of town it is yeah. What is in the future for Hip Chicks? It's a good question. <laughs> Staying in business. Yeah. <laughs> Staying in business, that's a good one. Yeah, um, yeah you know, we, um, we really pulled back production in 2007. I think, luckily, kind of feel that maybe the economy wasn't going to be so great for the next few years. So we really hunkered down and tightened our belts and didn't make as much wine. and. Um, so the last couple of years, we've really kind of tried to be more in production mode and in building back up um, and increasing our production. Um, we've made as much as 5,000 cases of wine here. Right now we're making about 2,500 cases of wine. Um, it's a tough place to be in, because really, you know, you gotta get to that 5,000 mark and over to really feel like you have enough wine to sell in other markets, especially if you're going to make 14 different wines. Yeah. I mean, if we had 5,000 cases of one wine, we'd be okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yet, we don't want to get too big. Right. Because we like the idea of keeping the, I like the idea of keeping <laughs> the control. Um, there you go. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you know, just kind of expanding. We'd like to try some new wines. We've tried all kinds of new wines over the years. We've really been wanting to make sparkling wine. We love sparkling wine. Um, and I guess, you know, just taking that leap and going for it, finding the right vineyard um, is kind of a next step for that. Mm -hmm. um, we're in the middle of expanding into some kegged wines. Kegged wines are huge in Oregon now. And so we've kind of started that this year a little bit. Um, but yeah, keep it in business. Mm -hmm. It's a good call. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it is. You know, you. Um, I, I feel like it's just really, um, it's really tough in Portland right now. There's so many locally owned businesses that are closing, mm -hmm. um, and uh, I have a friend who's really involved in the local business scene and. She's been kind of posting on Facebook, you know, updates every few days. It's, here's another business who's closed. Here's another business who's closed. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's so difficult because I do feel like Portland especially, um, 
we love our small businesses. We love our local businesses, and and Portland is all about shopping local. But then on the flip side, you've you've got to continue to shop local. Um, it's hard when you have a customer that says, "I haven't been here since." you know, fill in the blank. Since your son was this tall, and I'm like, well, he's six foot tall now. <laughs> so it's been a while. Um, you know, so keeping, keeping in front of the customers and, and reminding them about local businesses and, and how much we give to the community. You know, we try to buy as many of our supplies locally as we possibly can. We get all of our printing done locally. I get called by people all the time in different states wanting our business to print our labels. Mm -mm. I get my labels printed 15 minutes from here. Mm -hmm. I'm happy with that. I'm giving jobs to people who live in my community. Mm -hmm. um, and you know everything that we do, we try to keep as local as possible um, because that's what's important. I'd rather, I'd rather have my neighbor have a job than somebody in another state have a job. Mm -hmm. That's what I care about. Yeah. Where do you think the urban wineries will evolve to? I think it can go really far. Yeah. I mean, there's um, exponentially, there's so many more wineries just in the past couple of years. Uh, I mean, to have gone from, there were seven wineries in Portland in 2011, and to have it now be 20 something is. Mm -hmm great. Um, there's definitely challenges to opening wineries, you know, in an urban setting. Um, there's been a lot of talk about prohibitive costs and rising rents, and that's all very real, you know. Um, it really kind of depends on where you want to choose to put your winery and how you want to do it. Um, there's going to be different challenges in any county that you go into. Um, you know, we chose a more industrial location. Um, and it's great because on the weekends when we tend to have a little more walk-in traffic, well, none of our neighbors work. So we get all the parking outside. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's a dead-end road. So when we pull up a big truck that we need to unload grapes on, we're not blocking traffic. You know, maybe one of the guys that works back in here has to wait five minutes. But it's not like we're on Northwest 23rd, you know, <laughs> with shops and people and apartments and that kind of thing. And we're close enough to residential areas that we have people from the neighborhood that walk down here to do their wine tasting or who are in our wine club. Um, some of the Portland wineries are definitely in more residential areas. And so on the one hand, that's great. Their neighbors love them. They're so excited they have a neighborhood winery. But also Until harvest comes around. <laughs> <laughs> and then they're blocking the streets and traffic. and um, Or they have a big event and there's no parking. And um, so there's definitely challenges. Um, and I think it's just kind of all in how, how you want to make it work for yeah. your own brand. Um, I, I would love to see uh, the Portland wine scene continue to grow and continue to not only get new members in, but also um, just to watch the existing wineries that we already have get bigger and better. Um, sometimes it just takes time. Mm -hmm. and practice fill it, figuring out who your target market is and how you want to sell your wine and who you want to sell it to and how to make that work. Um, the Portland wineries, we do a couple of joint events together every year and those are really great because people can come and experience such a diverse mix of wine 
Um, we just had our big annual event. We always do it the first Sunday in May. So we kind of kick off Oregon Wine Month with our PDX Urban Wine Experience. And um, so we had 13 of our 14 wineries all at Seven Bridges Winery up in Northeast Portland. And people could come and they could taste all these wines. Each winery poured three different wines and we had small plates of food. So you got a chance to, you know, just kind of hang out and nibble on some tasty food and taste all these wines. And we do a similar thing in December. It's a little smaller scale, but it's fun. And um, that one, we're typically also raising um, money or goods for a local charity. The last two years, we've done um, the Oregon Food Bank. And so we've had people bring food to the event. Um, and then we'll be at the Alberta Street Fair. Um, we do the PDX Urban Winery says the wine pavilion for that. Um, and that's another really great way to kind of just let Portlanders know that there's wineries in your backyard. You can just go to any day. Mm -hmm. Don't need anything special. Don't need a big long drive. Um, just go up the street mm -hmm. and visit your neighborhood winery. So, yeah. What advice would you have for people looking to get into the Portland urban winery scene? Start with a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> It's true, even in the urban scene. Um, I know that people out in the valley, I think they think, oh, okay, you guys can just kind of, not. you don't have to start with a lot of money, but it's sure helpful. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I guess also just don't take no for an answer. So. Mm -hmm. And maybe do some homework. Yeah, there's that too. I really, I've really appreciated the wineries that have, you know, come in and, and chatted with us and asked you know what worked what didn't work and um, how did you do this and how did you do that and um, I feel like the, that when they leave maybe they've gained a little bit of insight from us on what has worked and what hasn't worked sometimes you see wineries that just kind of open up and they haven't gone anywhere or asked anybody anything and then it's really hard for them and they're wondering why it's so hard it's because running a business is not easy. If it were easy, everybody would do it all the time. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so yeah, maybe do a little homework. Maybe think about how you're going to get people in your door. Um, I do. I agree with Renee. I think um, a lot of wineries out in the valley think that the urban wineries are just busy all the time. We're just packed because there's so many people in Portland that they're all just here all the time. So we're all just making so much money. Um, no, it's it's really in those ways no different than being out in the valley. We've still got to woo people in. You've got to explain to them, you know, why they should want to come to us. Um, they're you know, people like to do their one-stop shopping. So do they really think I'm going to go to my local winery to buy my wine? instead of just buying it at the grocery store. No, they just buy it at the grocery store. So if you don't have shelf placement in that grocery store, then they're not buying your wine. Um, and yeah, they'll come see us at a special event, um, but we're not necessarily any more packed than some of those wineries out in wine country are. And I've driven by plenty of them on the way back from the coast and thought, there's no one in your parking lot, because it's hard. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> The wine industry is traditionally really hard on relationships. Mm -hmm. So we yeah. are wondering, what's the secret for making it work? Therapy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Therapy's um, good. Talking. Mm -hmm. You know. Communicating. Um, I think that 
I'm terrible at leaving work at work mm. and just going home at the end of the day. Especially now in the age of smartphones where you can just be on Facebook and responding to emails and working 24-7 from home all the time. And it drives her crazy. So I try to ignore it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I know, you know, in the early years, it used to make me really frustrated because I'd want to talk work still when we would get home. And I would talk about work. And then, like, the next day or a week later, I'd be like, remember how we were talking about this? And she'd be like, I, no. <laughs> because when she got off, she was off. She was done. And so it took me a long time to figure out that, like, I can't do that. Mm. Um, and so even now... You know, she wanted to talk last night about this interview today. And I was like, no, I can't. <laughs> That's not the place that I'm in right now. I am watching some kind of really stupid television with my kid and um, can't do it. So yeah, setting boundaries. Um, but really, it's about talking and it's about um, realizing that you have different jobs on different days. You know, I think working together, I think sometimes people think that, like, we see each other all the time. Yeah. But we really don't. Mm. Like, Renee will be down here, you know, moving barrels around or topping up or something. And I might be upstairs, you know, entering, you know, all of our accounting stuff. And we'll go five hours, six hours. Have, I haven't left my office, you know. Didn't think about eating any lunch, you know. Um, and... Uh, so yeah, we don't necessarily see each other all the time, even though we're in the exact same building. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think also like setting up, uh, setting up like more formal staff meetings, which is tough because you do kind of tend to just talk about stuff all in regular time. conversation. But there's some things that you need deadlines for and decisions made, and um, so you kind of have to set up like that more formal time um, and then probably you know if we had all the money we needed I would say take vacations but since yeah. we just took <laughs> our first vacation last year that we had taken in about eight years yeah. I can't really say that <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but you know being aware of, of when the other person needs a break and or when they're frustrated and when they're mad and being able to go and take one for the team and, you know, answer that hard question somebody has or mm -hmm. whatever it may be. Yeah. But yeah, it's hard. <laughs> lots of therapy. Yeah, lots of therapy. <laughs> <laughs> True for every relationship. It, it really yeah. is, you know. Um, you learn so much. You do. Um, about yourself and just how to interact. Mm -hmm. And you remind yourself why you like that person in the beginning. <laughs> and we laugh a lot, we do, because you have to laugh. If you can't laugh at yourself and all of the crazy dumb things that just kind of happen in life, then you're just not gonna... You'll implode. Yeah, you will, you'll implode. Um, so we do, we laugh a lot mm -hmm. and um, try to make each other laugh a lot. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Well, those were my planned questions. Did you have any follow-ups that came up? Mm -hmm. Was there anything we should have asked you that we didn't, or any last thoughts you want to share? Um, you know, I guess it would just be to people that are 
purely thinking that they want to get into the wine industry. It's kind of like getting married and having a kid. There's never a right time. <laughs> you can't wait until you have enough money. You can't wait until you have learned enough. Um, I think one of the biggest catalysts for me getting into the wine business was that I was truly afraid that one day I would wake up an old woman and wish that I would have. Mm. So you really do just have to seize the day. Um, you have to believe enough in yourself that you can do it and just take that first step right off the ledge and go right into doing what you love. And don't look back and don't second guess yourself because every mistake you make along the way is what helps you to be the person that you are today. Ditto. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you both very much. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.